When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Mind Sculptors podcast. I am your host Callahan and we have a great show lined up for you all. But before we get into it and I introduced uh, today's uh, guests, I do want to take a moment uh, just to thank you all for joining us today. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, please make sure to like, subscribe and comment down below. You want access to our Discord server as well as support the channel and the events and content that we make. Make sure to head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash line sculptors, or check out the link in the description. So, uh, as you all know, we just finished up part three of our tier list uh, videos. So, well, I guess not our podcast series of the tier list. And uh, a couple people that we talked about a few weeks ago. Uh, as being really good players in a particular shell of it. Uh, they have some thoughts and they wanted to come in and uh, kind of share their thoughts on some of it. And uh, joining me today uh, all the way from the great state of New York is uh, my friend, Michael Levine, Dr. Michael Levine. How are you doing today? <laughs> I think Michael Levine is fine. <laughs> I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, and also uh, coming over from the D.C. area, my good friend, uh, Charles Zwang, Charles, otherwise known as Mono White Guy. Hey, thanks, Callahan. It's good to have you both. Uh, so we have if you are part of the uh, Mind Sculptors Discord community, uh, which if you become a patron, you could be part of. Uh, you would know these two. You would know Michael as Mono White Genius, and you would know Charles as Mono White Daddy. So that—that <laughs> <laughs> that is just a name. That is just a flavor of the week. Okay. You, I mean, before, right? What was it? Uh, mono Ass Genius? Was that what it was? No, yeah, it was Mono Ass Genius. No, no, it was Mono Ass Guy. All right. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. You were the genius. I was the ass. That's uh, right. <laughs> Are we, are we going to censor those things? Absolutely not. Love <laughs> <laughs> it. Uh, but uh, so you, both of you, we talked about in the first episode of the tier list, how uh, there were specific criticisms. A lot of us were not very uh, thrilled with mono white decks uh, overall in our ratings. And uh, everybody kind of had varying opinions on the three of them that we talked about. Uh, but specifically, we were talking about, well, you know, Heliod is a very good, uh, but, you know, what's really great is, you know, you see Charles and you see Michael do really well because they're excellent players. And so you guys took offense to that <laughs> and decided you wanted to come on and tell me why we're wrong, why uh, it's why we're not, not really just, good players, uh, why you're not really good players. <laughs> we're actually awful uh, players. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but we, we were talking about this a little bit before uh, we went live and Michael, um, you know, some of what you were saying is specifically that it's the preparation. It's knowing, you know, kind of knowing what you're going into, what you expect to play. 
and just kind of explain a little bit about why you guys wanted to come in here today. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it, it's really easy to say that Heliod isn't that great of a deck. Michael and Charles are great players. They, they make it look easy. They make it look great. Um, they're just handicapping themselves. And, you know, I'm not going to be so modest as to say I'm not a good player. I've played Magic since I was like, what, eight? Like, I've, I've played for a very, very long time. I, I, I know how to play Magic, but I don't think that's why I do well with Heliod. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily why Charles does well with Heliod. I think there's, you know, approaches you can take to playing decks where a lot of people can do pretty well with the decks that they'd like to play, not just the decks that we traditionally think are the top decks. So I, I kind of wanted to share how I go about playing some of these decks that are usually seen as maybe low tier decks and maybe F tier or E tier, mm-hmm. um, but still, still do well. You know, how do you, how do you win a game with a deck that only has white in it? I agree. <laughs> it sounds like a challenge, but it, it, you know, you can, you can put in the work and, and be able to do it. Yeah. And I know Charles, you uh, took Heliod Ballista to the MLC playoffs and were a uh, Hail Mary attempt from rebel away from winning that game, you know? Uh, so what are, what are your, some of the thoughts of, you know, why you, because uh, we're also doing a little bit of a questionnaire answering some community questions here. Yeah. Um, so I, I will be modest, <laughs> unlike Michael. <laughs> And, and say that like, well, and, and I won't say that I'm a bad player, but I also just, I, I just think that there's no business in evaluating whether a player is good or not. I just don't think that that actually factors into when you play a game. And this will probably get into more about the questionnaires and stuff, because that's, uh, for me, I've been playing Magic competitively since I was actually around Playum's age, if you're listening to this Playum. Uh, <laughs> so like 14, 15 years old. And I've been playing other like card games as well. And uh, I've studied like uh, parts of game design with other like pro magic players like Justin Gary uh, on like how a game is constructed and how it's played out. But like, I don't like, like when, and this is like part of like my own philosophy degree coming on here. It's like, when you ask me like, oh, you're a good player. I'm just like thinking like, what does that even mean? Right. Like, it's it's not an episode <laughs> with Charles or a discussion with Charles if there is not like a little bit of like some of that ph- philosophical undertones, some of that existential dread. But, it, but it's yeah. a real question. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you say what is a good deck or what is a good player, you have to think about what that means before you answer the question. And right. you, sometimes it's easy. Like I think everyone thinks LSV is a great player. Right. And when we look back at some decks in the history of Magic the Gathering, we can say like the Academy memory jar deck was an insanely like powerful great mm-hmm. deck, mm-hmm. but it gets a little bit more wishy-washy when you compare like the more middle 95 percentile of players and right. decks, you know, the, the, the average top standard deck, not like the decks that need to get everything banned, but like, you know, you pick up standard at any given time, top three decks, they're all probably good decks. And are they better or worse than the other standard decks that have happened? Who knows? And, and maybe it doesn't matter to define it. Yeah. And for the record, uh, I wasn't offended, but I did, I, I did, I did get Michael messaging me and being like, I, I don't know how I feel about this take. Right. And I was like, and I was like, 
Uh, and, and Michael and I, like, like I visited him. This was him. the same take we had a year ago for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but within this year, Michael and I finally got a chance to meet up and we played like several games and we had a really good time, like, uh, talking and discussing about like deck building approaches. And we also talked about other decks too. And like, by the way, none of those opinions from ours actually, I think really matter in that specific regards. The reason why I'm coming on here is that uh, I do like Michael. I do get these kinds of questions of like, oh, how do you play this? Or like, what do you do in this scenario? Or like, why is this card in your deck? Right. Or like, why aren't you running this card in your deck? And then like when I start explaining things, I realize that I'm talking more about a specific play pattern. And when I go over specific scenarios with them, they're like, well, this is a really hyper specific scenarios. Like, can you give me something more generalized? And I was like, and I, and, I, and I'm just thinking like, no, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> at a certain point, you're going to have to like, you're going to run into a certain scenario that isn't in your, your, your Bible of, oh, I have to do X, Y, and Z to get myself out of this. Right. right? You're going to have to MacGyver this yourself. And, and, and I figured that, that, that getting Michael on here, uh, cause, uh, having spoken with him, interacted with him, played with him, I thought this would be a very fruitful conversation to talk to people and answer some of their questions to try and get over that hurdle of how can you as a player be able to MacGyver something as janky as a pre-con in a CDH game. Right. Yeah. Well, so we, Michael and you both were talking about, um, you know, defining, you know, this, the classic, uh, what's a, a Socratic thing of defining terms, right? Yeah. So when we're, we're talking about uh, a good deck, uh, what does, you know, do we have a definition that you guys, for the sake of this conversation, right? Both kind of feel like is a, a good, like we had our, our, our variables for the, the tier list video, right? Like what are, what are the things you guys look for uh, in, in terms of, you know, what, makes a good deck michael yeah i feel like i have a pretty liberal definition of a good deck as long as it has a plan and the cards to execute that plan it's probably fairly good and and especially you know if we're talking about it has a plan it can execute that plan and it executes it using cards that aren't awful you know (laughs) it's probably a fairly good deck it can do the thing um and it can do the thing without having to you know build some crazy contraption Part of playing the the quote unquote Leska decks is definitely MacGyvering things, but you MacGyver it because you come prepared. Like the deck has the cards in it for you to be able to do this MacGyvering. So the the thing why I you know Charles brought up precons earlier. I think some of the precons now for mid to high power EDH are good decks because they're built with all the parts to do mm-hmm. the thing and MacGyver around. And you don't really need to upgrade them that much to get to something that is probably good enough to play in a CDH pod and, you know, not be scared that you're never going to win. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's kind of where I'm at with what makes a good deck. There are decks that I wouldn't play that are probably still good decks. I, I've talked to some people recently about, you know, why I don't like some specific stacks decks. And it's not because I don't think they're good decks. It's just that, you know, they're not decks that I want to play, but we've seen that you can make stacks decks that don't have win cons and they can win because they have a plan that involves, you know, winning without that dis- discrete win con. And that's great. And they're, they're good decks. They're, they're not the best decks, but they're still good. So 
Charles, is he calling you out a little bit? Uh, Yeah, I mean, well, I don't know. According to Pongo, you know, he he was born in Winconlistax, molded by it. (laughs) 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 To use his words specifically from uh, from that podcast. Uh, But (laughs) I used to play Lynn Civy that often just won with mirror entity. Yeah. And so I'm like fine with beats as a win con. That is a, that is a very legitimate thing. And I think it goes back to what Charles said before, you know, people have ideas. There's like, there's this book that you know how to make a deck and that involves a combo win con um, that you assemble. And now people are realizing that like in every other format of magic, you can win games by just turning your creatures sideways. They do do that as well. <laughs> um, they don't just turn to make mana. They, they turn to, to deal damage. So, and I'm happy that people are realizing that. And I right. think people are realizing that as long as your deck is constructed for that purpose, you can do well. You know, if you play the stacks pieces that allow you to attack and other people do not do their thing, you can win. And that is great. Like there's new good decks because people are embracing that, mm-hmm. that, so when we we look at uh the other term charles of what it means to be a good player um you know what is your kind of when we're talking about this definition sort of things you look for in and what you feel like makes up a good player so a uh a good player is someone who's able to take a deck oh and let me modify michael's definition a little bit for myself uh, but like a good deck for me is one in which, uh, like, like, I think that that's a solid definition for a good deck, but I want to add an addendum for what is a great deck, right? Because once again, I'm going, uh, I'm harping on like a philosophy degree here of like, what is a deck <laughs> versus a good deck, right? <laughs> Sometimes yeah. a, a deck is just a pile of cards, right? If we want to go with like the barest definition, but like a great deck and what makes like those S tier decks in the tier list, uh, that, that you guys had, I think is one where it's it's the the deck to player friction. Like the more it the, the, the more it requires like the handling of a player to to take the reins of a deck to pilot to its success, the less quote unquote great that deck is. If you built a deck in which like a, a novice or like inexperienced uh magic player can play and compete with other highly skilled players, um then then one might attribute that like well the deck is really carrying the player and not really the player carrying the deck and people can notice this when they play in a pod with someone they're like and someone wins and you know and you hear this this sometimes from salty players like oh well it wasn't you it was your deck or something Mm -hmm. like that right and i think that that really comes from from the person even though they're being really salty uh is them trying to accredit like how well built that deck is uh, so then moving over to your question about what makes a good player, I think a good player is someone who's able to uh, understand interactions and is able to notice and pick up interactions on the fly. But I think that it's it's also more holistic than mm-hmm. that because it because you can like here's the thing is that there are players who uh, there this one pro player, you know, tweeted the. The, the LED challenge and the solution to that challenge was actually cracking a fetch land. Uh, for those of you who know about this, you you probably know what I'm talking about. But I've given a problem before to other players uh, where it, it involves you having to cast a split second spell to counter a a um, a, a tainted pat uh, and 
and and and it's with sudden shock and it's like how did you even do that and it's like well there's a thing about spell casting these are things that judges like level one judges have to memorize and and understand but knowing the okay, rules as a level one judge <laughs> you don't memorize it you learn how to get the answer correct on the test and then look at gatherer for everything else yeah i mean like like, like there's this recent tweet about uh sinestra with coma right and and i think like like some players it's just going to fly over their head about how that actually works about tapping goto and it's like oh yeah right it works that way because there's a beginning of combat step during the combat phase which is broken down to five individual steps the first one puts the actual trigger on a step on the stack and gives you priority which allows like the, the, the non-active player, the opportunity to activate coma and all that stuff. But like, I, I'm getting into like really technical things, but like, these are things that like, I think a good magic player would be more like cognizant of, but like knowing those things honestly is not enough because now you, because especially in like a, an EDH game, not talking about one V one, you now also have to understand like the social dynamics and politics in the room. I'm not talking about like, you know, uh, he likes you or, or they are, they are, or they're like gunning for you, but more of like the game theory aspect and how to like navigate across that board. And so being able to read a board state, being able to read a player's tells and then leveraging interaction on the board, uh, based on all of your knowledge of the game itself, like, like holistically encompasses what a good player is in my eyes. Right. And that can, and that is agnostic of whatever deck they're playing. Yeah. I I have a pretty similar definition where it's like, if you're, if you're a good player, basically you can pick up a deck and figure out what it does and how to make it do the thing. And at the same time, as you see your opponent playing their deck, you can figure out what their deck does and what the thing they're trying to do is. And that usually requires you to understand the rules of the game, which in, you know, magic, it's complex. There's a lot of rules, but once you understand the rules of the game and you're kind of familiar with what interactions can exist in the game, picking these things up becomes easier. You know, mm-hmm. you see the pile of cards and you say, well, here's the Heliod deck. I see it has this combo, Walking Bliss and Heliod. I see that, you know, it has this other card. You know, someone asked me, why do you play Paladin Class the other day? And it's like, well, you know, first mode is a Grand Abolisher effect that's generically good, but second mode makes Walking Ballista cost cheaper. And like mm-hmm. once you realize it has this second interaction of anthems are good with walking ballista, you're like, okay, here's an interesting synergy. That's kind of cool. And then when you see the third one and you're like, oh, it has double strike. Yeah, it's double strike. That works really well with Heliod's ability. Like you start to pick up on why the deck's constructed the way it is and how you might want to play it. So mm-hmm. I think that that's really the, the important thing. Can you just look at the deck and figure out how it works and, right. and how you'll have to play it? My um, gosh, you, you too, I feel like, when you talk about, you know, looking at things and breaking it down and sort of, it, it reminds me almost like, I don't, I don't know if you guys uh, watched the chase on ABC, but it's uh, the, the former Jeopardy contestants of James Holzhauer and uh, you know, all those, all those guys uh, and Ken Jennings and uh, the three, I can't remember the other guy's name, um, but it makes me think of those guys, Brad Rutter, that's the name, uh, but it reminds me, makes me think of those guys talking about how they like figure out jeopardy questions and just like narrow it down. Um, yeah, it, you don't, it turns out you don't need to know everything to right. do well on jeopardy, but you have to figure out like how to search with what, you know, to I, maybe I know the answer to this. Maybe it is right. in my head somewhere. Right. 
Well, looking at um, some of the the uh, questions that we had here is uh, we we had some questions that were brought in from the community. And uh, this first question here is uh, thoughts on the 25 percent culture that's been growing with many new players coming into the format where it's better to attempt the win with zero evaluation because you'll win your 25% of games. Is it laziness, lack of experience, the meta, the community, math, et cetera, et cetera. When, in, when does this make sense? And was it, when is it a hindrance to growth as a player? I don't think it's inherently wrong to think that way. It just created an interesting dynamic in games where it's something to be aware of as a player. So, you know, the, 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 the overall of this question is the the is it okay to play like Phoenix all the time? Um, <laughs> uh, should you sack your collector oof that is ensuring that you don't die and lose on the stack? Uh, a, a good decision to do all the time. And you know, Michael, I've been starting uh, with you for a lot of these. So, Michael, you know, what is kind of your take on this? You know, you either have it or you don't sort of uh, play style that a lot of people have been adapting. Yeah, I mean, so I've noticed this a lot. I mean, it's really easy to use this kind of play style in if you play a turbo deck, because it's kind of like what you're leaning into in turbo decks, that you have a high chance of winning early on and that your cards will get you there because you have good card quality. And I I do it sometimes. You know, sometimes I top deck Ballista and I go for it because there's a good chance that it'll... It'll work. And if it doesn't work, well, that sucks. But the, the probability is probably in my favor. So, and I, I'm not against the idea of, you know, going for it because you think I probably have a 25% chance of winning or something like that. What I do think is that people have to maybe think a little bit more about where they're coming up with these probabilities at any given moment. I, I think that there's a lot of times where you have to just go for it, but you have to think about what are the odds of me winning if I just go for it. And it, you know, this is, coming as a player who also wants to enjoy the game like mm-hmm. it does kind of ruin the experience for your friends that you're playing with if you're constantly just winging it like it, it, it is kind of a weird thing that a lot of people have started doing and no one really does it in tournaments at least at the high level unless they're playing hermit druid unless they're playing hermit druid <laughs> yeah oh and i mean i i during uh mean 16 uh, river literally just killed himself with an adnos because he realized he he had gone for an early Adnaz and he was already so low in life that he was probably just going to die before he got to his next turn if he didn't win. Um, and it's like, well, you could have stopped your Adnaz like seven cards ago, maybe. And then mm-hmm. you could have passed. Um, so I, I know that it, it happens and I know that you do it. And I'm not against it, but I think people need to think about what, what are the real odds. I, I don't think, I think most decks are on average probably within a 20 to 30% win percentage if it's like one of the decks in the database or just like a generic deck that is doing the thing it's trying to do. And you need to keep those odds in your head. Don't think that you actually have like a 50% chance of winning because you're playing blue farm. Like that's, right. that's just not true. Uh, you know, you're, you're probably closer to 30%, maybe 27, 20, you know, not that much over 25. So one argument could be, you know, don't be so overconfident. And the other argument is, Maybe everyone is at 25%, so why not wing it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, that, that is a fine counter argument to what I'm saying, that, you know, everyone's pretty close, so you might as well wing it. But I, I think that 
you can up your percentage by playing more carefully. And, right. and that's what I usually aim for until I can't help myself but cast a ballista. And this was this was something, Charles, that I think uh, you uh, could probably speak to very well is uh, many times the situations in the MLC where you picked up wins, uh, you know, there were instances that you had to maneuver through that were kind of you had some major, majorly weird games in the MLC. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know if like it was majorly weird because of the players or if it be or if it was because something that I did. right like oh what's the what's the what's the saying i forgot who said it but i like to make my own luck oh wait no that was harvey dent right yeah (laughs) why do i why do i keep quoting batman but uh like so 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 to the question about people who who are like oh well i have a 25 percent chance like i'm trying to wrap my head around it because uh i'm trying to understand is it is it because People are like, well, this deck has a so-and-so percentage chance of winning. So uh so like I might as well just go for it. Because that that almost seems like like fallacious logic. Like that win percentage is there because of actions other players have taken to get that deck to that type of win percentage. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and and you are you are assuming that 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 in assuming that that type of win percentage exists, right? Uh, you in a vacuum. Not, yeah, in a vacuum, you do not need to take any relevant actions. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting because, in my opinion, it, it is a mindset that I don't think we really have in any other format of magic, right? Um, and because in 1v1, you're constantly going, is this a safe time to go off? Can I do this right now? And evaluating that. But in player all of a sudden it's it doesn't really matter what the board texture looks like necessarily um i just go for it and jam it and you could make an argument that that ends up being king makey in some some respects where you have these four player games and you can go for it and then you kind of leave the people who had to try and stop you out to dry so, so addressing the the thing about king making because I hear that a lot, uh, and I kind of actually almost want to break that down about what that entails. Right? Shortly, like, uh, yeah, that could be yeah. an episode in its own. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> base, yeah there, there are a lot of things that could be their own episodes that I, that I might be going over today. But like the thing that I like want to highlight is that the base case is someone who just throws away the game to spite someone else, mm-hmm. right? Like that, like like. Like that's a clear cut example where we can establish the foundation of what king making looks like, right? Uh, weirder cases are ones in which someone is like, okay, you know, this win conless stacks player is beating me to death. I need to find an out. My hail mary is a uh, wheel of fortune. There is a very high percentage that someone's going to flash in a notion thief, right? But I really have no other out, right? In fact, like one person uh, had deliberately tutor for a card that and, and they already and they and they get pro to me and knew that i had the wheel in my hand right like there 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 is like almost zero <laughs> zero chance that they are not going to st- that they're not going to write off of my wheel right but they're like I, i'm going to do it anyway i have no other outs right and, and they take the hail mary approach right and the person's like all right here's a notion thief Right. And, and the other two players are like, oh, great. You, you, you've king made the game. I don't, I don't particularly agree 
that that person key made the game, right? It's if you're going to lose, you don't care who wins. I, yeah, I think yeah. that is, and I think that that's not problematic thinking. That if you know that either you're going to lose or win with this action, you don't care who wins when you lose. Yeah, I, unless it's in a tournament structure in which that matters, which there are tournaments in which you know you do care who beats you because it changes your ranking and, and things like this. Yeah. But for the most part, you don't care, and I think that that's fine. It's yeah. a little bit different when you don't. It's not a you're going to lose if you don't do this type situation, I think a mm-hmm. lot of people have to get one of the things that if, you know, if you want to start being a better player or playing your deck better, you have to assess what the actual chances you're going to lose and what the actual chances you're going to win are. So don't mistake, you know, at this point in the game, there's probably a 20% chance I win with, there is a 0% chance. Uh, don't mistake, you know, this person's going to, kill me in three turns as I'm pretty much dead now. Um, Because then people start making wild decisions that really throw the game. Um, And and what I want to say is that it's not that I don't do this and Charles don't do this. Like Charles, I'll tell you that in preparation for MLC, uh, the the game against Rebel, I practiced with Rebel. I was playing Lista as you. I even tried to play with your play style which meant jamming turn to court of uh, grace. But um, <laughs> actually, I actually don't do that. <laughs> oh, it was turn one rule of law, turn two court of grace. It was oh, great. Nice. But, but the, why I'm bringing this up is that, you know, I had, was pretty secure that I was going to win the game. I had a ton of angels. Almost everyone was dead. I topped that ballista and I thought I can end it now. I'm going to kill the player with open mana in blue and then go for it. in my second main, and twice was playing the deck that Rebel played against you. And when I attacked and killed the blue player, he immediately said, this means you're going to go for it. And your second maze in, in, up, in combat cast a silence. And that lost me the game. I lost because he cast that silence. My turn ended and he went for it on his turn. And I had killed the only person who could counter anything. So, you know, like, I got greedy because in my head at that moment, I thought the chance of me winning if I do this goes up extraordinarily. And I'm in a, I somehow thought there was still a chance I could lose when really, if I had just kept playing conservatively, doing the angel beats, leaving up in direction, it would have been fine. So it's really easy, even for a so called good player, to make this mistake and, and throw the game to someone else. And, and it, I think that that's the first thing that you need to work on when you are playing your deck, like really assessing how far away you are from a win, how close you are to a win or losing. And like knowing based on what the other players are doing, what they think about that as well. Cause that, you know, that really changes things too. Twice knew that I was close. He read right. the board and knew, and that's why he kept up one white mana for a silence, right. <laughs> you know, for <laughs> like, like that is yeah. really good playing. And, and I didn't see that. I didn't realize that he knew I was so close too. Right. So I, I think these are all things that you really need to do so that it doesn't seem to other people, you know, you're kingmaking because it, it's accidental kingmaking at that point. You know, you right. did a thing you didn't need to do. You gave the game to someone else. Right. Yeah. So looking at the the next question here, uh, and we start to move into this metagaming portion of the discussion uh, is, you know, when you're going into a blind meta and we've got kind of a handful of questions that all seem to uh, wrap into this. When you're going into a blind meta, 
and you don't fully understand the deck that you're playing. Uh, maybe you're new to it. Maybe it's your first time really taking this to a tournament um, and have only gotten like a few practice games into it. Um, how do you go about piloting? Um, how do you figure out the lines? How do you go trying to figure out your opponent's lines? Those sorts of things. So, uh, Charles, when you were going into the MLC uh, most recently, um, you were playing some decks that you were not super familiar with, right? You know, you weren't, um, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that you uh, were not well-versed in playing Derevi and Kenrith uh, beforehand. And so when you look at this question of how do you going into a blind meta, and granted, uh, the MLC wasn't a blind meta, but, you know, you've been very successful in other tournament formats in the past. Um, what is kind of your way of dealing with those sorts of things? Okay, so uh, it's great to have as much information as possible. So addressing uh, one of the points of the question of asking their lines uh, and uh yeah, you can ask them, see if they tell you or not. I mean, like, it never hurts <laughs> Good to luck. ask. Yeah, it but never you hurts. A, you can ask yeah. the other opponents, right? That yeah. is the, the the key thing. You, right. you don't have to ask the person what their line is. You ask the other two players what their what the other person's line is. Yeah, right. like, like, hey, I've never, like, because the thing is that everybody is trying to be competitive in that type of setting. So, like, transparency is very good. Like, when talking about, you know, the scenario of accidental kingmaking. Even in that situation, I would even call it in a, a king-made scenario. It's just one player getting outplayed by another and the rest of the board getting punished by the outmaneuvering. Uh, the, in that type of situation, nobody wants that type of outcome, right? Because they fear that it'll happen to them. It's like the John Rawls of Veil of Ignorance, if anyone's read like the Theory of Justice. I'm, I'm getting on my philosophy train again, <laughs> but also it's any, just you, Charles. <laughs> if anyone's a legal scholar, they will know that book. All right. Uh, I mean, it's like the, the, the basis of, of a lot of like social justice, like theories today, but anyway, uh, it, the point it's, is for, it's, yeah. it's good for everyone to know everyone else's lines. Yes. You want people to play in a predictable and intelligent manner. So mm -hmm. I think if you're in a pod and you don't know what the other decks do, you just be like, what do these decks do? And a lot of players will literally tell you. With that information, right, you still might not have a complete picture about how you want to navigate through the game. Take it one turn at a time, all right? Like, it can feel really daunting, overwhelming, and I think, like, the worst thing that you could really do for yourself is to walk in, like, the game with a game plan already, you know? Because you might be you might be tunnel visioned into that road mm -hmm. of, like, this is how I'm going to play this game, Right, based on everyone's decks, right? You like you're you're opening mulligan hand. So so the thing is that if you, if you do have only minimal preparation, work on studying like what is a good hand to open with mm -hmm. that deck, right? If you can't really do anything else, and then progress from there. Uh, focus more on your fundamentals then on understanding like card advantage, what that means. Uh, focus your understanding on tempo. Uh, focus your understanding on like game theory to navigate through it. If you don't know the deck itself. Very important thing, know what your tutor targets are. Yeah. <laughs> I embarrassed myself on the Suburb Balloon stream because I thought I had a Psych Rift in the deck I was playing, and it did not Wait, have a Wait, you Rift played in. a deck that wasn't mono-white? Well, so <laughs> here's, you know, going in blind. I literally went in that day to make a point, which I, I both succeeded and failed at doing. 
which is, you know, I have strong feelings about Oracle. I think that it's really easy to build a deck that can win pretty consistently if you have Oracle pack combo. So I've made Nadir Thrasios. Um, it is a food chain deck that really is like elf ball food chain. You basically, Nadir makes infinite creatures. It's like Prosh, but in Soltai effectively. Yeah. You basically play like your Beast Whisper and then you replay Thrasios to draw your deck and then you do Oracle. Um, and I was just doing it because I think Nadir is a funny card and I was like, this will be fun to do. Uh, but in one of the matches that was being streamed, you know, I thought I had the Psych Rift and I didn't look at how I tapped my mana because I thought I only needed blue and a colorless open after I tutored. Um, turned out that not only did I not have Psych Rift, that because my only target was Assassin's Trophy in this situation, uh, I had tapped wrong. I could have tapped differently and just got the Assassin's Trophy, but I didn't. So then I ended up having to do some convoluted line of making a blocker for Kovald by swan songing my own mental misstep. It was insanity. And all I had to do was look at my list a little bit more before I played in this tournament. Mm-hmm. And like, that's why when I say, you know, I'm not this like perfect player, I made this mistake on a stream, which lost me a match after I'd already gone infinite. And I literally just needed to block or remove a Korvald for one turn. Right. And I made that mistake because I didn't do my preparation. I didn't know that I didn't have Psych Rift. And I didn't know that I should that differently just in case I need to get the Assassin's Trophy. You know, like there was a there was really easy things to do. And, and this comes down to, especially in high color decks, you know, knowing what to fetch because you know what lands you have in your deck. And, and so first thing I think is most important is just know your lines at the simplest of when I cast this tutor, these are the things I can tutor for. Uh, right. Or you'll embarrass yourself like me and get killed by... Well, and and that's interesting because uh, you talk about preparations and one of the questions is uh, specifically what do you do to prepare for a tournament, you know, going in like this? And so what are things that you guys do to prepare going in out? You know, you mentioned uh, knowing your deck list and kind of knowing what your tutor targets are. are. Are there other things you really prepare for and think about? Michael, you can start. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I mean, I think people really um, overestimate how homogenous the format is when you go to a tournament. Like The pods are nuts. You will see pod compositions you've never seen before. So one of the ways that I, I used to do a lot of preparation was just random cockatrice uh, pods. Like make my pods as crazy as possible so that I can get in weirder and weirder situations and know how to navigate my deck. It's like what Charles was saying about MacGyvering things. Mm-hmm. Like in a tournament, you're not going to always see, you know, the three uh, Silas Roger decks pods or something like this right. that you might get if you play on like a small group or like one in one discord, uh, you're going to see weird stuff and you need to be, you know, like, what does that mean? Um, what does my deck do in weird situations? So I, I really think that approach of like playing really diverse pods is the best way to prepare for an open tournament, especially when it's a meta that you haven't played in. So like you like going to a state that you've never played Magic in or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going to Tier One Con and like you haven't played that much different <laughs> with the Europeans, like you know, <laughs> just play really diverse pods so you know how to play your deck in a lot of different situations, and you'll probably be able to figure it out. And um, and these heuristics are not that dissimilar from preparation that you would take going to a modern tournament or a, you know, a pioneer tournament or standard tournament, right? Yeah. Try to play against as many decks as possible. 
and and then hope that that is enough knowledge to navigate what shows up at the tournament. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will. Also, I, I I completely agree with that. Uh, I I really enjoy going to different servers, playing against different decks, and playing with like varied pods. Uh, one of the things that I was traveling a lot during the summer, and Callahan knows this, is that when I visited them in Nebraska, one of the things that <laughs> I liked doing was just swapping with other people's yep. decks, right? Really learning how those other decks also worked, right? And seeing how like my deck performs against them. That's Man, what that was Rebel the... did to prepare for your pod. She yeah. played the the Temer Malcolm deck and not yeah. the not the yeah. um yeah. the deck she was the Hulk deck. Because she wanted to know how that deck worked, and yeah. that is really important. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool because uh, in one of Phoenix, because the next day, because uh, well, some context, uh, Cole from the Azami server uh, was was there too, and and he brought his Azami deck, and, and I was like, all right, let me let me pilot Azami, and you can pilot like. Oh, this Elishnorn. is the cursed game. Yeah, you can pilot the Elishnorn <laughs> deck, and I will. Pers- and we had this scenario where I proceeded to draw out my entire deck along with him. There was. Yeah. Cole had an alms collector on the board and uh, Charles had consecrated Sphinx. Yeah. So it was literally a permission of, can I draw? Can I draw? Can I draw? Can I draw? It was literally what it was. They banned that card trade routes or whatever, whatever that one card is that you get to make that decision over and over again. Yeah. They banned it for a reason. It's very bad. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and so we, and so we got into that uh, specific scenario and, and, and I like, I played, Consecrators, like this is like, like I've played Commander since like 2011 or 2010, and and I've been in that Consecrated Sphinx match off, and I was like, I am very well familiar of how to win this through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Cole was like, I don't know what to do now that I have all these cards in my hand as <laughs> playing mono white because I'm not used to having this many cards in my hand playing mono white, and there's a rule of law in play, right? Uh, or not rule of law, but definitely silence in play. And I explained to to Cole that, that you can funnel an opponent's decisions if you have a uh, with a grand abolisher out, right? Is that if you play a grand abolisher, your opponent is forced to interact at that specific focal point. Because if they counter the grand abolisher, right, they've used their one non-creature spell. And you can now follow that up with an Armageddon, right? Because you have not cast your non-creature spell for the turn. And it was really, and, and and that pretty much cuts out almost any access, no matter how many cards your opponents have in their hand, they will, they, they end up folding into that type of situation where you've put them into a catch 22. It was really funny because like the next day in Phoenix's matchup against uh, Hellenium, it was just pretty much Hellenium being the only person with interaction and Phoenix is, and Phoenix had a deafening silence out and, and he was like, I'm going to play Grand Abolisher now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Helena was like, oh shit. <laughs> yep. yeah. Uh and, and so and so it was really cool to see because Phoenix was also in that game. And it was really cool to see like and th- and this goes back to like something about being a good player where I where I talk about rules and interactions and stuff like that. Like part like yes, you can be a good player knowing that, but someone who's not a good player can become one if they're really open-minded to learning about interactions because mm-hmm. you never stop growing as a good player. It's not a sign of you being a good player for you being very inquisitive and learning, but that aspect or that trait really puts you into that level. And it's one of the things that I've talked to rebel about and, 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 and like convincing her and Michael about playing, like even like with pre-cons, right. Is learning like player, uh, player mannerisms, player behavior, play patterns, and, 
stunning interactions through specific game mechanics. Uh, mm-hmm. On Comedian Server, uh, Discord Server, one of the things that I talked about was like the card Wheel of Misfortune. Because I are you in having, every Discord server? He's in every yeah. Discord. I, server. I, I told you I, I play with almost every specific like type of meta. Right, I expose myself to a lot of these things. Man, and I play I, in Team Turn Three, and that's about <laughs> it. Yeah. And, and 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 one of the things that I explained to them was like Wheel of Misfortune is that for most players, like experienced players, they will compare this to Browbeat, but more casual players will immediately recognize this as a variant of Goblin Game. And uh, what I thought was interesting, because I had this conversation with with Brayden about this uh, a while ago, and Brayden did the whole video about Wheel of Misfortune on the CDH cast. And, and I explained to Brayden that, because Brayden's initial response is like, oh, I don't think this card is good. It's like a browbeat. And I was like, no, this is more like a goblin game. And I thought it was really funny because they're like, what's a goblin game, right? And, oh, my favorite card from that set. The art's <laughs> yeah, amazing. Squeeze yeah. got things hidden behind his back. It feels like a game with a goblin. It's yeah, like a- it's really funny because like when you bring this up with experienced players, they will literally start hiding things in the room. And, was, and But when you bring this up with casual players, they'll start writing a number down. Right. And it really goes to show that the casual players know how the card works and they, and they already have a strategy in mind of how to game that card. And so when you print a competitive mechanical variant of it, because Goblin Game is not really a competitive card, like you can do better with like seven mana. Right. I think that it costs seven mana. But like like when you print it on something like an effect of Wheel of Fortune, which is played competitively. Right. The next thing now is for you, the player, to understand, well, okay, this is a variant of Wheel of Wheel Fortune with a Goblin Game mechanic printed onto it. Do I know how to play a Goblin Game mechanic card, right? And so there are tons of cards that deal with, like, plus one, plus one counters, right? That deal with, like, something like that Deafening Silence of Grand Abolisher interaction. But these are, like, more competitive uh, mechanics. And so uh, studying how each mechanic works, like I mentioned about, like, the Brina deck a lot. I mentioned about like playing with the Mardu Precon from Mycoria. It's not that these are competitive, it's that they have very interesting mechanics and knowing how they work will help you in terms of like transition into more competitive mechanics. And those decks are probably built for that purpose. If we're being honest, I, I think Watsi is smart. I think when they design the Precons, they want them to do cool things and they want to teach the players how to do cool things, mm-hmm. right? The best way to get people to buy more cards is to learn all the cool things they can do with their cards. And right. how they can do what they just learned how to do in a better way if they buy these other cards that are more expensive. You know, it 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 they are definitely built to be teaching instruments and they it do is, a good job. It is better than Commander uh nineteen though. Commander nineteen. <laughs> we played the Commander uh all of the Lincoln uh, group of people down here, we played we each played uh them against each other and like they just they they none of them had win cons in them. So yeah, it was so just that's like, the difference between a good deck and a bad yeah. deck. You know, you like, don't have a plan. Of, <laughs> none of them had win cons, so the Naya deck ended up just beating everybody to death because it had better creatures in it. And so, and it was like the uh, Savine deck had like hardly any creatures in it, and just eventually ran out of steam because it didn't wasn't able to cast enough spells. And uh, you know. It's interesting because I, I do agree with you. I think Watsi's kind of stepped up their pre-con game recently. Um, but one of the interesting questions on here that uh, moving on is a question here about what would it take for Heliod or similar strategies like Kalia, Yuriko, Lathriel, Lavinia uh, to get out of tier two and three <laughs> and into at least tier 1.5. Would it be bans? 
Uh, would we have to discover some secret tech that dunks on ad nauseum or do these decks fare well against mid range at all? Or would there somehow, or would that somehow make it worse? So, uh, you know, what is, uh, Charles, your take yeah. here of what would it take to bump those up into that upper echelon? Yeah. So this goes back to, uh, the beginning of this, where we talked about definitions about good decks and great decks, right? And if we're going by the definition that I had set out about, uh, a, a, a really high tier deck, uh, it would have to be a very frictionless deck, right? Where, uh, either if it's, if it's a control deck, it almost has to be very absolute in its control. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be like stacks or rule of law, just any form of control. Like keep in mind about how, um, uh, variable and how uh, uh, fluid or, or liquid uh, Wizards game design is. We might see some new card with some new mechanics or some new way to play the game that changes the whole thing. Like Adnaz was like literally came up overnight when the card was printed. It circled around one card. Same goes with Rule of Law. Same goes with like Lavinia uh, Omen Machine, right? It just takes a card to really change all that. So that being said, uh, the card, like, like, like talking about like, you know, some secret tech that dunks on Adnaz, I would say that that's being responsive, right? Like in order for a deck to, to really push to the limit, it has to be the type of deck that becomes its own threat, uh, where, and, and it also has to be the kind of deck where someone where, like I said, like, uh, a novice player who, who knows like, you know, the, the simple basics of, of playing a magic, the gathering deck could be considered a threat at the table when they have this deck in hand, right? And it's not any specific card, not any specific banning, really. It, it really is dependent on, like, if someone is able to build a deck that can do that uh, agnostic from the actual pilot, almost. Mm-hmm. I, I would add to that that one of the things that I think makes, you know, decks better or worse is do they need to play bad cards to make the deck work? Like mm-hmm. cards that are you lean a little too much in the synergies, and this is something that I really learned from watching Jeff Hoogan play a lot uh, on his stream. Because one of his critiques of decklist that he gets sent all the time is that it leans on too many synergies, too many cute interactions, and individually the card is not powerful. And I think that the way that, for example, I've noticed Heliod's got better is that I've been able to replace bad cards with good cards. Like Death and Taxes is good in Modern and Legacy and Vintage because it has a density of good cards. You don't play bad cards. When you go into Singleton 100 card formats, we didn't have enough good cards. But as they print Grand Magistrate and Archon of Emeria, like the the bad cards slowly get removed. The cute things like Knowledge Pullocks, no offense, uh, mm-hmm. get removed. You know. And you realize that now I don't play have, knowledge pool anymore. I know, I know. Well, but I mean, <laughs> that's the truth, right? That that lock isn't that good, but it was the best thing you could do at the time, right? Um, and so now you don't have to play knowledge pool. And and Heliod played knowledge pool locks, and now we don't need to play knowledge pool locks. Now you can play Omen Machine and think me later. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was one of the big proponents of trying to do that in Heliod. Now I just think prison elements are not necessary because mm-hmm. we have so many individually powerful cards, right? You know, like. I'm so happy mono white decks don't need to play oblation anymore. Like that's great. And I think that a lot of these low color decks just will get better as there's better cards to replace the bad cards. Mm -hmm. Whereas the five color decks literally are just playing the best cards 
And, you know, sometimes there are certain synergies that they lean into, but like you don't need to, mm-hmm, like right. you, you just don't need to play bad cards. Yep. And, and that will make decks more autopilotable. Like you were talking about Charles, like, mm-hmm. like if the cards aren't bad, if they're all good, then someone can just play the cards in their hand. If it all leans into like crazy synergies, then a new player is not going to know exactly why cards are there and what to do with the cards when they draw them. So it's just much easier to have good cards. <laughs> yep. Right. And, and, uh, and like I said, um, and to specify with, I think the last part of the question about whether or not, you know, they have to fare well against mid range, uh, this the the answer Michael and I are saying is that this could happen to any type of archetype, whether it be mm-hmm. like uh, turbo uh, stacks, mid range, whatever. It's like the 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 key aspect of it is that the deck has to itself present as like almost priority number one threat. I think like turbo decks uh, have that type of presence right now. But like it's not uh, far from the imagination that like other decks can also like one day get to that type of threat level, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so that, that that's something to just keep in mind about like, uh, yeah, like about what that specific threshold is. It has nothing really to do with archetypes. It has more to do about like the um, the the core definition of what makes a good deck good or right. great. And specifically about mid-range, like stack stacking against mid-range, the reason why stack stacks aren't good against mid-range is because the good cards and that can do stacks things aren't also starting against mid-range. But if they start printing really efficient cards that both double as stacks and a mid-range weapon, like we'll play them and the deck will get better. And I even right. think it's getting better now. Like Urza's Saga makes our decks better against mid-range mm-hmm. because stack stacks have tons of artifacts and now they have a bunch of 8-8 constructs and the mid-range player can't just sit around and activate Thrasios because they're going to die. And like we, were, like I think Heliod is really pivoted towards we don't want to just lose to the mid-range decks, but we're not going to play bad cards to try to do that. But we have more good cards that let us do right. it now. Yeah. So uh, looking at the the next kind of the final little bit here is when you're looking at sort of the brewer versus the player. Um, and kind of distilling some of this down, uh, when you're starting out in CEDH or picking up a new deck, how do you go about gold fishing to improve your knowledge of the deck you are playing? Um, you know, obviously this is easier with proactive decks than mid range decks, whereas stacks and control lists get a little weird because a lot of those sorts of things are interactable. You know, a lot of that is very, um, it is dependent on the board state, right? And what what's going on in the game. So Michael, for you, when you, you are playing these decks that tend to lean into more of that stacks element of it. Um, what are, how, how do you goldfish effectively for those? Yeah, I mean, I I goldfish an insane amount. Like whenever I change a single card in my list, I goldfish like hundreds of times Mm -hmm. um, before I would like move it into my paper list that I'm going to bring to the LGS. And and this is much the annoyance of people on the Heliod Discord who are like, oh, you update your list again. And it's like, well, that's for goldfishing purposes. Mm -hmm. The the way I go about it is I'd like to know at any given time how many things I can stop. So I think that, this is often a thing that people in TurboDex do where they're like, 
you know, can I win now with protection? And what I think about is not can I protect my combo usually, but how many of can I protect the game is the way I see it. You know, what can what can I stop at any given time? Am I constantly in a situation where I can stop multiple of the most popular win cons? Or am I often in a situation where on a given turn I can't stop anything? And if I find myself in one configuration of the deck often having turns where I can't stop anything, then I'm going to figure out why is that? What cards are are not doing what I need them to do so that I can stop other people from winning? And I think this is really important to do, just that every turn assess, you know, what would I be able to stop now? Mm-hmm. What, if, if someone removed one piece, how bad is that? If you're constantly finding in your goldfishing that you know your one removal spell away from everything falling apart, that's a bad sign. Um, and I also do it because you know we are a stack deck, but we want to get the Heliod Ballista. Like the big strength of the Heliod deck is that once Heliod's in play, like any turn, I could technically win. And and mm-hmm. this is a thing I argue about with people when we're playing because people will be like, "No, he has it. He's gonna just untap and ballista us." And I'm trying to tell people not necessarily. You know, whether or not I'm being truthful about that is a whole other thing. But like, that's the nice thing about the deck. But when I goldfish, I need to make sure that I am not tripping over my own feet. Like, can I actually get to Ballista or are the cards I'm playing making it too hard for me to get to Walking Ballista? Mm-hmm. Like, that's why I cut Torpor Over Effects because I was goldfishing and kept being like, I have a Torpor Over Effect and I have a Recruiter of the Guard and now I can't win. And now, mm-hmm. like, that's bad. Could I have another thing that stops the same problem? And doesn't stop me from winning. Because ultimately, I think any stacks deck in CDH is a tempo deck. You just want to slow your opponents down and speed yourself up, you know, so that you're now you're gonna win on average faster than them. So when you goldfish, you have to say, you know, how badly are my cards slowing me down? And I know a lot of people still are against the fact that I removed, you know, Hushbringer and Hush and Grift and all of those effects, but I kill people with Ballista way more often now, and that's the point of the deck. So I, 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 I think it really only came from how many times I found that those cards interacted poorly in my goldfishing, and, and right. so you got to do something like that. Yeah, I really like that uh, deck building approach because uh, you're catering your deck to your own specific play style. Because I, I played with Hushbringer and Hushbring Griff. Uh, in the version of Heliod Ballista that that I was running in the MLC, those were like the five. I think it was like four or five cards that we could modify, and I specifically deliberately added in Torpor Orb effects. But that was also like with like how I was playing the deck in my mind, uh, and uh, it, and I think like that's really important for like people like who are gold fishing. Like you might not find like there 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 is like an optimal answer to like how you want to build it, but it might not be like the objectively correct answer for you. Uh, and what I mean by that is that if you cannot figure out the line to play it uh, or the line that you're playing it, you know, causes you to, or leads you to making like bad decisions uh, because you, you, you have different play patterns or habits, right. Then do not like try to like run this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and also cut your losses there. Like I'm willing to, to, to play into that torpor orb game, but, uh, and, and Michael's point is that like, well, he, he finds himself winning more games than losing when he doesn't have it there. Right. And, and, and then that's like a really calculated risk assessment, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I can lose to a dockside because I don't have a torpor orb or I can lose to a thoracle because I don't have a torpor orb, but 
uh, I am now able to create scenarios where uh, I can just win with Ballista before they even get to do that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And and in my situation, I'm like, okay, I'm willing to go into those types of games with it uh, and, and play and play around it. But notice here that our play patterns are are, are different here. Right. right? And, and that's something that you really need to consider when you're when you're evaluating your hands. Uh, well, and this is something uh, to compare and contrast a little bit with my own experience is, um, you know, Phoenix and I do a lot of brewing together, but we have, we could not have more different play styles, right? I tend to be a very conservative player. I tend to sandbag. I tend to sit back on things and Phoenix just throws shit at the wall and sees what sticks. Um, and so, and that's not entirely true. He's a very, very talented player and a very thoughtful player, but my point is, is that we approach how we play our decks differently, right? Um, so when we are suggesting debt or cards for lists, um, you know, they look a little bit different, right? And that's kind of the same thing here between you guys. And what to the point that you're making is that there is a lot of things that you need to consider when you're goldfishing these things. Of What is your style of play? What is going to fit how you are going to want to play? Yeah. It- uh, yeah, so, uh, here, I'll, I'll go first. There's a lot of self-reflection in that, right? Because now you really have to know yourself um, mm-hmm. when you do that. There's a there's a quote uh, that uh, a friend slash mentor of mine had, had, had told me a long time ago, which is uh, knowing without thinking is just foolishness. Uh, thinking without knowing is perilous. Uh, and, and, and the meaning behind that is that if you... you like people can tell you how a deck is supposed to be played. You can read the primer, right? But if you cannot make these intuitions uh, when you're playing the deck, uh, you either have to get better with the play pattern or you need to change the deck, mm-hmm. right? And and I, I feel like no one should really uh, feel guilty or judged if they have to compromise a deck's integrity to cater more towards the play pattern. From a competitive spirit as long as you're winning and you're putting out results, that's all that really matters. You can forge your own new play pattern that is novel to your style. And it might teach and inform other players too about something that they might not consider either as well. Right. Right. And I would say like when I, I remember when I first top four the DDM tournament with Heliod and Mons had me on CHTV, he asked why I didn't play rule of law. And I said in that interview, I didn't play Rule of Law because I'm awful at playing with Rule of Law in play. And wasn't when that, that happened, that was still pre flash ban, right? That was pre flash yeah. ban. Yeah. I did play um I did play, you know, on a rhetoric and what else was in that deck there, you know, in like canonist. But I wouldn't play Rule of Law proper. Um and and I said it because I, you know, I, I I'm bad at playing when it's in play. And it it'll mess me up more than it'll help me. And I refused for a long time until Flash was banned and I realized that the best cards in the deck were now Rule of Law. So then mm-hmm. I had to Goldfish a lot because I had to get used to how do I play this deck with Rule of Law and play? Like, it turns out that making the sequencing decisions just becomes so, so important when you play a Rule of Law deck. And the best way to know if your sequencing is bad is did you goldfish yourself into a hole? Like, <laughs> how many times did things just go off the rail because you don't know how to how to sequence your turns? Um, so I, I had to do that, and so I think 
you should play the decks you're comfortable with, the strategy you're comfortable with. And then if you want to push out of your comfort zone, you just need to practice. You can't pick up something like a turbo deck if you're not comfortable playing turbo decks and just play it. I mean, that's why I think I embarrassed myself at Summer Bloom because I picked up this food chain deck having never played a food chain deck in my life and just tried to jam it. And Oh, I thought it was... I, I think the the best version of this is uh, earlier this year when I was trying to uh, before I kind of came to the epi- the the understanding um, that um, I don't play turbo Nas. I'm very bad at it and I like to play mid range good stuff and uh, <laughs> was was me on the team turn three streams trying to play Mardu Timna uh, like Timna Jessica. And I would just play myself into a hole because I'd play it like a mid-range deck and the deck is not built that way. It's a turbo Nas deck. Yeah. And, and so you, you have to play what you're comfortable with. And if you're going to play something you're not comfortable with, you have to practice. There's, there's Mm -hmm. no way you're just going to figure it out on the fly. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you want to watch someone figure it out on the fly, watch me trying to (laughs) counter, try trying to win through Croc Sharkashima when he had a, I think a, what what do you call the, the two life one mental misstep. And uh, now I tried to just literally counter all the copies of Mental Misstep because I don't know <laughs> as a turbo uh, how to play against that kind of deck as a turbo player. I know how to play against that deck when there's a rule on play. Right. <laughs> I don't know what you're supposed to do when you have 30 cards in your hand. You have like six counters, but you keep having more counters. You got to counter back. Turns out yeah. I just had to counter the original copy and I would have been fine. Uh, but I lost the game instead. And yeah. like, you know, that would have been it was me thinking of it like a stacks player where I'm going to one for one this until it's mm-hmm. over. Um, when really I should have thought of it as a turbo player of, Oh, it's easy to get around this once I have, you know, three counters. Right. I, I just, mm-hmm. yeah. Well here, as we uh, kind of wrap things up, uh, you know, lots of good stuff here in the, uh, how to play series. Um, and, you know, how to play better is what I'm going to call this episode. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Charles, before we uh, kind of take off any final thoughts for people as we kind of head out. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be a rules lawyer. Uh, you don't have to like, uh, I think like a really key takeaway, if you take away anything is, uh, first of all, love what you're playing, uh, and, 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 and play what you love. Um, but be very cognizant about what you're doing. Be observant about what other people are doing, and you can probably learn something from them. Uh, and then take it on yourself uh, be, to to remember that uh, and, and and study it because uh, it it can become useful one day. I feel like a lot of people talk about me being a good player or you know playing things that they haven't thought about thinking about playing before. And I will tell you that like, it, like this did not just come out of my brain, right? Like I go to a lot of different places, play with a lot of different people. I swap decks with them to play their decks too. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I, I learn from what they do. Uh, like you're always a student, never really the teacher. Right. And uh, you can always learn from each other and having like a really good spirit can go a long way in terms of, uh, of creating a very good environment for you to just be a better player. Uh, I will, I will, I will leave this with one because Michael talked about 
uh, flying under the radar. I will tell you a story real quick about someone who flew under the radar like tremendously well. Uh, like this was back when whole breacher was legal and the person was playing like a breach deck. I had a spirit of the labyrinth out. The other guy had a whole breacher and it was this guy's turn. He draws a card for the turn and he plays uh wheel of fortune. Right. And uh, the, the, the other players at the table almost don't want to uh, say anything because this person looks like they were about to win. Right. And, and we want them to like discard their hand. Right. And so because because we thought that they were trying to wheel to 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 find uh, their 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 win cons, they, they seem to have a really like well set up board with tons of treasure tokens already from like a, a smothering tithe. And we thought that they were just going to play into it, not like completely forgetting that there's both a whole breacher and spirit of the labyrinth out. And so we were all like, yeah, yeah, sure. It resolves. Right. And as soon as like, all right, cool. It resolves. Right. The, the, the whole breacher player is like, all right, cool. I'm going to make 14 treasures. Right. Uh, and, 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 and me with the spirit of labyrinth is like, okay. And you're only going to draw one card. Right. And the guy who plays the wheel doesn't bat an eye at all. He's like, all right, cool. I'm going to discard these cards from my hand. It's an underworld breach. It's a lion's eye diamond. It's a brain freeze. And it's a, and it's a Savine's reclamation, right? <laughs> and, and and the whole breacher player like realized what this guy had just done, right? And this is what I'm talking about, MacGyvering the scenario here, right? The person just built their own makeshift silence effect because the whole breacher player now only draws one card, and everyone else has no cards in hand, no form of interaction, and uh, the, the 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 breach player is like, you know, I'm going to flashback. Savine's reclamation now. Did you top deck a counterspell? <laughs> and and obviously the 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 person whiffed on their top deck. I mean, they there there's a very low probability in that type of scenario. Mm-hmm. And and the person wins off the back of both Whole Breacher and Spirit of the Labyrinth and a Wheel of, of Fortune, right? And I think like that really goes to show like a couple of things about how fluid uh like combo decks are in the face of like stacks pieces but also like it takes a player really to to see this type of line and this type of interaction and just go for it whereas others might be like well i can't i can't win because there's a whole breacher out type mm-hmm. of thing. right yeah michael some closing thoughts yeah i mean i think that when you're you're choosing what deck you want to play you want to play cdh um don't look at the tier list like don't I would say don't even don't even necessarily look at like the deck database. Just be like, what kind of deck do I want to play? Then start searching. Does that deck exist? How are people playing it? You know, start playing with some of the lists. Not maybe not. Don't pick one list. If you find like four different lists for that deck you're thinking you want to play, play the four different lists. Play with a bunch of different people and start to figure out how you want to play it. And then do the work when you want to go to a tournament, you know, make sure you've played a big array of decks, make sure that you've done the gold fishing. So, you know, your lines, make sure, you know, your tutor targets and then just go do it. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't need to have perfected everything. You don't have to have played the deck for three years. You don't need anything. You just need to have picked the deck, done your, done the work and, and try it out. You lose, maybe you'll lose in the first tournament. And then you'll win in the next one. Who cares? You know, it's, right. it's not a big deal. Uh, I think any deck that has a plan plays decent cards um, and you know how to play it, you can do well. You can, right. you can get pretty close to that 25%. I think that, 
you go back to the first question, 25% philosophy. Maybe don't apply that to wing it during the game, but do apply <laughs> it to picking your deck. You know, right. just pick a deck that you think you can get close to 25% with uh, and, and, and try to have fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I appreciate you guys taking time out and uh, sharing your thoughts with us today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Um, and so... Uh, that about wraps things up for us here today. Just a quick reminder that you can uh, follow us on Twitter at Sculpey Boys, B-O-I-S, where you can find a direct link in our link tree in the description below. I uh, want to also give an extra thanks to all of our patrons who help keep the lights on. If you too would like to become a patron, you can head on over to patreon.com slash the mind sculptors or check out the link in the description. Thanks again for joining us and from all of us here at the Mind Sculptors. I'm Callahan, and we'll see you next time. I'm in line with the stars, I'm in sync with the earth. Ten toes deep, flower child from the turf. I never switch sides, like even when I die, I'm a ride for the squad. Let our ties in the hearse. I've been on a vibe kind of hard to describe. I'm in between, I'm good and it's fine, but I'm tired of the grind. Then I come alive in the night to realize I'm in the middle of the time of my life. I'm never so packed for the stack, never lied on the back, got a bag from the way that I write it. Queen looking Tyson, do that I survive doing 80 to the house. Then I Just build for my lips.